went to try some virtual orienteering competitions as I was out running. So when I got back, I yeah just like made a, a website quickly and started advertising, and then. Uh, and then, yeah, just I think made Thierry a and... quickly and started advertising. Oh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. like that. Just easy peasy. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Run-In. We have got an interview with Chris Smithard coming up. He, uh, you may well know him from uh, Lockdown O. He's organised all of that, as well as the uh, Coast and Islands events this last year. But he is also making his way out to Switzerland for Euro meeting and then Italy for the World Cup final. So we will get his thoughts on all of that in a bit. But first of all, we want to talk a little bit about this World Cup final that's taking place in Italy in a uh, couple of weeks time. We've got, I believe, Will, we've got a a long distance on the Thursday, a Mm -hmm. middle distance on the Saturday and then randomly a sprint relay on the Sunday. And that's what's going on. Yeah, it's, um, it's sprint relay seems a bit tacked on to the end, to be honest. Almost like they just have to get in an extra sprint relay for a quota of relays for the year. It seems quite weird. I'm guessing so, relay. yes. Um, yeah, so high alpine terrain in the Dolomites. Uh, so it's going to be an absolute slog for, for the women and the men. The men's long distance race is 20.7k with <sighs> nearly a thousand metres of climb. It's going to be absolutely savage. Um a bit like the last World Cup was, which was slightly over planned for both genders. So I wonder if it is going to be the same this time. That's really going to push the athletes to the physical extreme of what they're able to cope with. And uh, it's pretty, you know, quite rocky, tough terrain in the forest as well, but it looks a bit in, in sections. So it's really going to test them, um, you know, in every avenue that the World Cup wants to test athletes, um, technically, physically and mentally. Yeah, it's going to be a real, real tough one. And again, this year, as you said, and I'm actually quite glad we're not commentating live on the long distance because I think it'll be super, super long. I'm doing some highlights afterwards. Yeah. Um, but it's all, you can follow it all um, on the tracking and things like that, I'm sure, and on the split times as well. Um, and we've got uh, quite a decent team going out there in terms of a decently sized team. Josh Dudley, Hector Haynes, Ben Mitchell, Chris Millard, Ralph Street, Alistair Thomas on the men's side of things. Cecilia Anderson, Fiona Bunn, Meg Carter-Davis, Grace Malloy, Joe Shepard, and then Laura King's doing just the forest disciplines. And Charlotte Ward is doing just the um, mixed sprint relay to head out there. But Will, I think you wanted to have a little moan about start times. Yes. Yeah. So and, and this is my opinion. So people can take it um, as they want. But in my opinion, the World Cup is is partially, at least, not fit for purpose in what the IOF aims for it to do. So the IOF's big aim is to get into the Olympics. You know, they want to have that global spotlight on orienteering and want to showcase it to everyone, increase participation and, you know, have the money and numbers to go along with that, which is admirable aim. I think everyone from orienteering probably... Every athlete would love to race at the Olympics. I can't think of any athlete who wouldn't want to do that. Um, <laughs> there are some, yes. There, there are there, there are some out there. there are I think a everyone. Lot. There are a lot. There are people. I think most people would want to watch it in there. And there's the trepidation that maybe if it went full professional into the Olympics, that doping could have more of an issue um, involved with it, which is probably quite true. Um, because I think it. I think it's probably quite a clean sport at the moment, but. The problem that the IOF have at the minute is that their World Cup series doesn't actually allow for very fair competition for all uh, all countries, which will not get 
participation to the level it needs to or showcase athletes at the level they need to to get the big nations involved in the Olympics on board to get orienteering in there. And the main problem, I think, is around start times where you have a start list based on World Cup seeding. So the same people get listed at the end of the start list every single time. The forest tracks up and they go faster because it's tracked up. Anyone who's running a tracked up forest in an orienteering race knows how much faster it is than an early one, which is why at the World Cup in Sweden, we saw people who had never done very well or never won a World Cup race winning World Cup races because it wasn't tracked up and the technical, the technically proficient athletes were able to come out on top. So Hannah Lundberg, who I think it was her first international, mm-hmm. went and won because everyone else struggled in the terrain and they couldn't deal with it. There wasn't the tracking to help them out. And, and this is a very sweeping statement. Though. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> People are going to you know, send me messages on Instagram or Twitter saying, what the hell are you on about? But I, I, I think it's a very valid point of the the people in the world cup and the world champs who start at the back they earn the right to be in those spots and have those spots no one's arguing that but it creates an issue in a two-party system almost where you have people who can always beat those who start in front of them from smaller nations who don't get the world ranking points and don't get access to them especially out of covid when there have been no world ranking events for them to go to Mm. And then they can never so then it kind of, of becomes break. self-perpetuating then as well. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is coming from the perception of someone who hasn't got very high in the world ranking list to be in that last 20 in the forest because I don't go to enough world ranking events on, and, you know, I haven't been able to get to the World Cup for the last couple of years. Um, but this is part of the problem. And then, and then you hear things on social media afterwards from some of the athletes being surprised that they're going, oh, well, yeah, that was a tough World Cup. I was, I'm suddenly all the way down here in exposition mm. I'm, I'm not going to name any names but people were surprised at their positions after the world cup that's because they had to try they had to technically work harder mm. and physically work harder in the terrain than they normally would do and the result was uh, the end of that they didn't get the result that they would have normally got and you know cause causation correlation doesn't always equal causation and the reasons for those those results are you know are, are what they are. They, I could be right, I could be wrong, but I think that we're going to see more of the same people back on top of this World Cup in comparison to what we saw at the last World Cup round. And it will be the same people. If it's Swiss, if it's Norwegians, if it's Swedes, who get good world ranking points and start at the back. And that's who's going to win. Well, we will see. We will see, won't we? There's my um, rant because, over. Well, there I, think there is, I think there is a part of it, just people who are you know that good at orienteering are good in pretty much a lot of the you know almost True. all the terrain so what would you do we saw that at the world champs we yeah because yeah. we saw that at the world champs yeah, with yeah, it yeah. being supposedly unique terrain but the yeah. same people still won yeah um what would i do differently? i would have um i would try and have more different disciplines in there i know people don't like mass start races or chasing start races because of the following aspect which is fine um i personally enjoy those so i would like them in but i also think it adds an element of of seeing who can actually run or rate or see who can race at the same pace. So it kind of evens the level playing field a little bit, but I think starting the people who normally start last at the front, so let, let them deal with a completely fresh forest, have Gustav starting first in the field and see if he still does win. And let's just at least see what happens and see where he'll come and, and give the people who normally start first the shot at getting the conditions that those people who normally win get. Um, I think yeah, it's mix an it idea. up throughout the year. Some of them, the those exactly. top ranked ones, can start at the end, and sometimes they can start at the beginning. Well, 
Yeah. We'll see if they we'll see if the IOF take this up and uh, I doubt they will. <laughs> no, but, but that, something to spice quite... it up as well. Because yeah. it's the same story. We've had a couple of chasing starts in the last couple of years, but this year there's it's the same disciplines that are happening again and again and well, we're never going to progress the sport. Split, they've split walk and then now there's, you know, there's yeah. fewer races at each one. So there's there's just you'd still have the same amount of races in the year. Well, no, you have fewer races in the year, so they want to make these the like pure disciplines or the world champs disciplines rather than mixing it up. And when you've got more races, you can put in something spicy like a chasing start. So, mm. yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Or maybe maybe we need a, like a B-level World Cup where they try these things out. So it's not going to affect the actual World Cup. But then we have like, like the version of Euro circuit. meeting. A secondary circuit, yeah, that's underneath where we go, right, this is where we're just going to test any discipline that comes into our heads and just see if it works. And if it does and everyone loves it, boom, like we'll, we can try it as a World Cup next year. If not, we'll get rid of it and put it on the scrap heap. But at least they need to try to breathe some extra life in to try and increase audience numbers because well, they're never going to get their aims. With the, with the knockout sprint, things like that? Well, we've, we've only seen it this year. so we'll, okay. And it wasn't at the World Champs, so we'll see next year but then but that, that's the point it's a good it's a good addition i think and it was really exciting at european champs mm. so can we have a forest version okay. that'd be hectic that would be Elim- like a, 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 why not an elimination race where you yes. get five loops of 2k you set everyone out and there's a field of 100 people and you chop 20 people off at the end last 20 people gone goodbye and then you've got 20 people Actually, fighting out for the win that sounds like a really good idea i really like the. i'd idea love to do that i'd love every, to watch it I'd love every to do fifth it. control you lose 10 runners or something that's that sounds pretty cool yeah just have an official come along and pull the no control's goodbye. gone pull it out oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah you pull the control out up oh, it's pull not here anymore out. no goodbye can't punch it <laughs> you're gone really and if you carry it. on you know who's tried to carry on and skip the control because they're mispunched at the yeah. end yeah so like right really well you're disqualified i really like that i think that's really cool okay that's a good idea. We'll, Maybe we'll... we can try it in the UK first. We'll try and get the UK Elite League to do something like that. And yeah, then, uh... the UK Elite League has been putting out some good ideas, so that's pretty we'll, good. We'll well, speaking of domestic races, I'm gonna gonna pull you off this subject now, Will, because <laughs> yeah. rant over. <laughs> rant over. I apologise. People um, can go back to normal programming. Mm-hmm. And of course, because we've got the World Cup coming up, but we also have the British champs coming up as well. The British long distance champs um, down in the southwest of England. Um, on some fantastic sand dunes everyone's gonna have uh, mm. head down there i'm gutted i can't go because i'm commentating Same. on the world cup and a lot of again a lot of the elites won't be there but um you know it's just great i think it's been very complicated trying to get a british long distance champs together and you know they've managed to make it happen um down it down in devon and it looks like it's going to be a really fantastic race i absolutely love Braunton burrows having i think that a race there like a few years ago and just some massive dunes and some like really kind of like scrubby bits with a bit more vague dunes it's just really really difficult so yeah good luck to everybody who is um heading down to compete at the british champs down there it looks like it's going to be i hope it's going to be a fantastic weekend as well yeah it looks i mean it's fantastic terrain i think it was used for jk in 2010 that matt speak on the men's overall i know that and it was so technical such a long way in the long distance <laughs> since i'm looking at the map it's crazy so yeah best of luck yeah okay let's get on to our main interview of today and we are chatting to chris millard um so chris welcome to the podcast 
Um, thanks for joining us. Why we wanted to get you on um, this episode is because you are going to head on abroad in, I think, only a matter of a couple of days. First for Euro meeting and then for the World Cup final. So you've got some Euro meeting first in Switzerland, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so off there in like three days time. And uh I guess for me, your meeting is like seeing what the terrain's like for the World Championships, which is in Switzerland in two years' time. So your meeting is a, like a test event for athletes and also for the organisers. So, yeah, just kind of for me, it's like looking at the terrain, thinking does this kind of inspire me, get me motivated for training for the World Champs in two years' time. That's that's my reason for going. Have you been to that area of um, Switzerland before? I've been close by, but not to that area. So I think this terrain's going to be quite a bit different to what I've run in before. Mm. So is this even when you're, you know, you're out there, you're racing? Actually, is most of your brain thinking, "Do I like this? What? How is it mapped? What is the terrain like? Can I move through it? All that kind of thing." Yeah, basically, I think it's just seeing. Yeah, like you say, what what is it like on the ground? How do I feel, like physically, navigationally? Do I enjoy it? And yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure what to expect because I haven't really looked into it very much. Like for me, going to your meeting is is finding that out. So um, yeah, just see how that goes, basically. Yeah, I guess it's like the prep. The prep. It's you don't really need to prep for that because the whole point of you going is prepping. So yeah, that makes a lot of <laughs> yes. sense. I think. I think. Um, and then. I think we've got quite a big team with quite a lot of juniors there, so hopefully it should be quite fun. Like, what are you what are you doing in terms of like going out there as a team? Yeah, so I think that yeah, I mean it's quite a big group of people going. I think it's like fifteen fifteen of us going. So I know some of the the Jaywalk athletes who couldn't go to Jaywalk are coming on that. So they're getting a bit of a bit of competition abroad against other people. So I'm sure, yeah, that's kind of they're probably preparing a bit more than I'm preparing for it. And, you know, if I can help at all during the weekend, then, yeah, I don't mind kind of sacrificing my own runs a little bit if if that helps them mm. at all. So then how much will that help you decide then with, about whether to do, whether to aim for that World Championships? Uh, <laughs> I guess it's, I don't know, I, I guess we just, just see how it goes. I mean, yeah, I have to admit, I've thought very little about it and, um, someone did actually tell me today, I don't think it's going to be that similar to the World Championships terrain. And I was like, oh, that's that would be disappointing. <laughs> but I think at least I can go and I can chat to some of the other runners there, some of the Swiss guys, the organisers, and that will that give a good flavour. They can say what is different about this terrain compared to the World Champs terrain. So, mm. And then how important is it finding that motivation from somewhere? Do you often find your motivation from knowing what the terrain's like? I think it's a bit different because normally I'm just motivated to do like international I generally just do sprint racing and now that world champs has gone to every two years I think that's an opportunity to maybe to look at the forest disciplines in a, in a non-sprint year mm. and so that kind of gives a bit more yeah flexibility and to do something a bit different or or maybe I just go oh in the in the non-sprint world champs years I'm going to do do the European sprint champs instead and that's just going to be the focus so I thought it's kind of good to go two years out and decide what I was going to do in two years' time because I think that's kind of the time that you need to to properly prepare for the competition. Yeah, I think Will and I had noticed you'd done more 
forest races recently? Uh, yeah, slightly more, but I think I think that's a little bit after after lockdown. You kind of just want to get out there and go racing, and just you just do what what comes up basically. <laughs> so maybe now not not purely a sprint guy. Uh, I guess internationally, I still think of myself more of a sprint, but I don't think when I'm in the UK, I, you know, I I, I just do everything because I enjoy doing everything. I just I don't think I I can't perform at the same level in the forest, and I just, therefore it's about knowing where to put energy and motivation and and financial uh, effort into getting the best results I can. Mm. So I guess. So the the reason why you've been mostly a sprinter internationally so far is that because you, yeah, as you just said, because you think you're getting kind of better results for the amount of effort you're putting in, things like that? Yeah, basically. That, <laughs> simple terms, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Did you, have you always loved um, sprint? No, when I was a junior, I, I don't think I did so much. And then I think... I went to uh, to uni and I got faster and then I started to get quite good results in sprint. So I thought, well, maybe this is the place I should just... I, I know you got that balance between working on strengths and working on weaknesses. And I guess there comes a point when you think, right, it's better just to focus on the strengths and try and push those further because you're more likely to to achieve better results, I think, doing it that way. Or at least for me, I felt that was what was most applicable. Mm. And how, and obviously, so you raced sprint at um, the World Champs this year. Um, and I think you were 24th in that, um, in the Czech Republic, in that amazing fort with all the underpasses and it just looked fantastic. T tell me about that. Tell us about that race from, from your perspective and like, you know, talk us through it, how it went for you. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, an amazing race and really unique. So from a, from a like a orienteering point of view, it was yeah a really cool race to be in. Uh, from a performance point of view, it it didn't really go that well, and I guess that's a more kind of yeah in detailed conversation about maybe why it didn't go so well. Um, well, maybe not which going is kind of disappointing. Detail, maybe not. Maybe if it's a two-hour story, no. we won't tell the two-hour story. It's the crib notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess it's just. I guess. There's no specific, yeah, I guess it's more, for me, I need to kind of train in similar sort of terrain to to kind of, to get to really feel confident in the terrain, but also to do well in terms of being kind of, everything being second nature and picking the right routes. So it, we don't really have any terrain like that in the UK and we couldn't travel abroad to, to train in that type of terrain. So I kind of felt maybe, in hindsight, I was probably un, underprepared for that type of challenge uh but in saying that like i'm just i'm already looking forward to ahead to next year and i think in denmark it's more suitable for what i'm kind of good at in terms of sprint orienteering but also i think yeah being able to prepare better for that i mean but that terrain is so specialized there's not much like it like what more do you think you could have done uh, there was, there were definitely other other teams were going through similar terrain and in for example France they've got some of those kind of forts so yeah I mean there's not that much terrain and I think other other there's definitely 
other orienteers who can just turn up at any type of terrain and they just they can adjust very quickly to that but i guess just based on experience i just feel yeah i just need a bit more time in in that kind of terrain to to train well i think it's the phrase like second nature that you use that i think is that's i think what i try to bring out a lot when i'm um talking about how important it is to have stuff in relevant terrain just because yeah everything takes you less time to do or less energy or less effort to do when it's second nature because you know how everything should be and should look and how the map should look i guess is is that how you you describe it yeah i think so and i think specifically in this type of terrain it was seeing the route choices and i just wasn't i was seeing one route and i was just running that route because nothing else was jumping out at me on the page and that was in some cases it was quite a quite a long way off the optimum route shall we say so and for people who might be listening chris who haven't had the opportunity yet or um inclination to do a race of that importance where they have to go and get in terrain in inverted commas uh, what do you do training wise what are the sessions that you're doing to get that feeling is it just running courses is it just doing loads of intervals walking around the areas to get that feel you know kind of what sessions will you be doing? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, mostly for me. It's mostly like hard hard sessions. So it's like a, a, a race or very close to race pace. I think uh, I don't I don't really do very much sprint training at very slow speed because you like the whole point of sprint is that it's about fast decision making and and done slowly. There isn't really that much of a challenge, shall we say? So I think it's definitely preparing in that kind of yeah high speed high intensity sort of way and yeah like I just getting in similar sort of terrain basically in areas that I like that or sometimes it's sometimes it's possible to like uh, adjust maps so they're a bit more like I like the area where you're going to so for example I know like if you're going to Venice for example with a lot of canals you could like change some of the roads in an area to be canals and then artificial bridges over for example then that's kind of you're getting the similar sort of route choice kind of decisions although obviously the area doesn't look like that but you can kind of mimic the area but in in these starports it was yeah it was quite hard to kind of mimic that in uh in areas that i could train on locally yeah but it's about putting <laughs> yourself under that pressure and under that speed and stressing yourself in the same way yeah yeah there you go everyone knows what to do now yeah but definitely trying to do sprint at a slower pace like it just defeats the point of it bringing a sprint course like and so many i think sprint courses you look on paper and you go actually that oh that's kind of easy and then you go no actually because they're running like i don't know however many mins per k but just like sprinting really fast around here and that's what makes it tough i had great fun walking around the british sprints (laughs) that's because i was walking (laughs) i meant to have much more fun than everyone else (laughs) That's all right. That's all right for some, <laughs> some injured people, um, I guess. Um, and then after, after you were in meeting, you gonna you come back home and then going back out again to um, Italy for the World Cup final. No, we're just we're just going straight straight from Switzerland straight to Italy because only a, there's like three days three days off in the rest days. So yeah, uh, yeah and it's quite it's the yeah, it's like I think it's like a five hour drive between the two. Sounds like a good plan. And with, yeah, and I mean, obviously, with all the COVID stuff at the moment, it's a lot easier not to, to travel too much as well. Yeah, that's true. And so how, 
how much are you are you looking ahead to the World Cup final in terms of preparations or are you waiting to have Switzerland underway and then think about Italy? How's it going to be? And uh, no, I mean we have been doing a bit on have been doing a bit on Italy already, looking at some of the maps and potential kind of courses in in the forest terrain. Uh, the yeah, it's looking it's quite interesting because like the long distance is like very it's a very long long distance. It seems like almost twenty one kilometers straight line with like eight hundred meters of climb, and we're all thinking. Is that really going to be a hundred minutes for the men and for the women? It's like thirteen kilometers. So, yeah, that's kind of an interesting one. Like, it must be very, very fast in the terrain um, to actually to to get that winning time. And then compared to that, the middle distance is, seems quite short. I think it's. I'm gonna got it here. It's like, yeah, the men it's like four point eight and the women's four point four. So that seems like really short. So, it's uh. I think it's the same arena both days, so it's the terrain must change quite a bit in quite a small area. So and then and then the sprint relay, which is I guess that's quite a big reason why I'm going to run the sprint relay. Um that's in like a I guess you could describe it yeah, it's like it's a, a ski a ski village, so it's kind of a little bit mixed but quite a lot of yeah, larger kind of ski chalets and then kind of open areas in between and a bit of a slope and and uh, and then a bit of a, a, a town centre as well. So uh, I've just been finding similar areas to that in uh, other places in the Alps and looking at potential routes and stuff because there's not yeah, there's no old map for that one. So mm. it's a new a new experience for everybody. <laughs> yeah, and, that's quite fun. It's not an old map. It sounds like it could be kind of like the World Cup final in Switzerland. Um, a few years ago in Grindelwald, which was also like hilly and alpine and everything like that. Yeah, that's the map we've been looking at. Well, I've been looking at the most, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how do you prep differently for um, for the sprint relay? Will you do anything different than that in terms of that? Uh, yeah, not greatly. Um, we did manage. There was a. We did manage to have a group uh, sprintable session last week uh, in in central Scotland. Uh, would it, of course it would have been nice to have done maybe a few more, but that's just what we can manage to fit in with what everyone's doing. Yeah, and then doing some practice uh, sprint intervals, not without without control descriptions, like checking the codes. Because I know for myself in in normal sprint orienteering, I don't check the codes. Uh, maybe I know probably Ooh. very few. Ooh. Wow, very controversial. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, in a sprint relay, though, you you haven't... They're on the map, so you've got to unfold the map and look at the codes, and you want to take a bit less risk in a relay, yeah. of course. So I think it's definitely... Because it, when it's such a natural reaction, when you're sprint-orienting, as soon as you start checking codes, that can, like, throw everything else out of balance a bit. So mm -hmm. definitely something you need to, need to train a bit as you're going into the races to get that kind of flow. Yeah, oh, I'd never even thought about that before. That's... Yeah, that's a totally different thing. Will, do you check your codes on a sprint race? I always try and check my codes. I do never you? trust myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Genuinely, I, oh. I've, I've had some bad, I've had some bad experiences of mispunching um, okay. in my in my junior time. So um, I sometimes forget if it's a sprint, but I always try and check my codes in every single race, especially I, I triple check in relays. I think wow. if you if you mispunch in a relay, it's just yeah, it's criminal. Yeah, I don't. I really don't check my. I will check my codes if I think, if I'm if I'm not that certain that it's the control, 
but I feel like I've got good enough picture in my head to know that if it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, I think I think the thing is, it's because I've seen people miss punch on the final control of Euclid before, assuming they know which one they're going to and they okay. don't check. Um, so, yeah, I just I just try. I, I do forget, but I just always try and do it now. But then on spring relays, like you say, Chris, like most relays internationally, they'll have the code next to the control number. So it's easy to unfold. Like you don't even need to unfold the map. But sprint relay, obviously, it takes up too much room and covers up gaps, so you can't do that. So it's even more intense, um, especially when probably I don't. Chris, do you have a set leg that you run normally? Are you leg two or leg three? Uh, I don't Maybe we've no, not got to the stage set. of people specialising <laughs> on legs yet. <laughs> no, and I there is rumours that it's all gonna it could be changing soon anyway. Oh really? They might mix the men oh, and really? the men and women up again. Yeah, so I think that would be fun. <laughs> What maybe do you changing think? every year. Well, maybe we could, should it just be picked out of a hat. Like right before the race. Yeah, right before the race. Pick it out of a hat. <laughs> GB have got man, woman, man, woman. Sweden have got woman, woman, man, man. Oh, no, I think it should be standardised like across the relay. Like it should be like man, woman, man, woman. And every, every team would run the same. Does that make sense? That, you think it should like, be mixed up like between... I think mixed up would just be absolute had. carnage. Yeah. <laughs> also, the athletics mixed relays, don't they just put them on whatever order they want? They do, but then everyone does the same because they don't want Not to be out, out foxed. <laughs> Not always. Swimming, but... swimming at the Olympics was quite mixed. They they didn't always do the same. That was quite good. So, but yeah, I imagine actually in orienteering, they'd all do the same as well, if given the choice. People wouldn't want to risk it. No. I think. But we should take no. that out of the athletes' hands and just throw complete jeopardy in. How else are you going to attract TV audiences? So you think they're going to so do what... man, man, woman, man, woman then, Chris? No, I think they're going to like mix it up, change it each year. Oh. That's what rumour I heard, but I mean, I, I think this is quite early discussions, so <laughs> I don't think it's very official or anything. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Do you have a preference, though, leg two or leg three? I wouldn't think it really mattered that much. No, no I don't have any. No preference. <laughs> Will, do you have a preference? <sighs> No, I don't think so. Either way, you're probably chasing people or being chased by very fast people. Um, leg two is a bit more intense because the, the gaps might be smaller, so probably leg two. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I've not done, to be fair, I've not done too many, and the ones I've done, I've only done leg two, so that's the only experience I've got really. And then, Chris, how how much does your prep for a World Cup round compare to how much you prep for a World Championships? Yeah, I would say. <sighs> Yeah, probably quite a lot less for a World Cup, to be honest. Like a, a World Champs, uh, it's just feels like a very a lot a much bigger race, um, and that's kind of like the focus almost for the whole year. Whereas the World Cups are kind of a kind of extras to some degree. I mean, it does depend, of course. If uh, it depends what you get selected for. So if I wasn't selected for World Champs for one year, the World Cup probably becomes a bigger race then. So. Uh, so yeah and i guess that's generally in, and in terms of prep it's like that can like i said saying before it might be the whole the whole year before like training is like more specialized towards that so for example if there's going to be more cobblestones for example in the world champs race i'd try and train more on cobblestones for the year before but that's not what i'd be doing for a world cup race it's yeah. just uh yeah maybe the last couple of two or three weeks is maybe the preparation 
Yeah, because otherwise you've got, you know, you might be doing four different, four World Cup rounds in four different terrains and like being able to be across all of them is pretty much impossible, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, yeah. Do you have any particular aims then for that World Cup um, final? Those final few races? Just kind of going and seeing how how it is. Topping off the end of the yeah, season. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the forest, it'd be it'd be nice to do better than I did in Sweden. I wasn't in the World Cup races there in, in August. Uh, I was, yeah, didn't do so well. I mean, the terrain caught me a little bit by surprise, shall we say. Like, uh, I wasn't expecting to be so rocky underfoot, which is uh, probably my, like, biggest weakness uh, due to, due to, yeah, uh, a weak ankle, shall we say. So that was, uh, yeah, it didn't go so well. So it'd be nice to at least outperform that, those races. Mm. And in the, in the relay, yeah, just see how it goes, really. No, uh, no big expectations, but, you know, just want to run, run well and have, be happy with the performance I put out on the day. Yeah. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I will move on then to um, uh, some of the other things you do in orienteering because the elite side orienteering of orienteering is like only <laughs> it is a long list. Um, the elite side is only um, like one of the part of the things. Well, why don't you give us a, a list? Uh, give us an insight of all the, a few of the different things that you do, Chris, and then we'll like kind of look into a few of them maybe. Yeah, so I guess this year uh, I spent quite a lot of time organising an event in Scotland called Coasts and Islands, which was a week of orienteering along the northwest coast of Scotland, like moving along the coast between uh, Loch Inverulipool right down to, to Sky, with the first the first ever orienteering event on Sky. So it was a it was a pretty intense week because um, yeah, that's to say it was. Basically, me did most. I did well. I did most of the work, and then my dad was helping me at the, on the week, and a few other people chipped in. So, but it all kind of went quite well. It's kind of it's supposed to be kind of informal to some degree. So, um, it was just yeah, almost bare bones, you could say. Uh, but just going to some really cool areas and making some new maps, and yeah, and most people who came seemed to enjoy it. So it was. I was pretty happy with how smooth it went, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, it seemed to be good on the day that um, I just rocked up. So um, that was pretty good. So were you having to do that all from uh, kind of remotely or like, you know, making the maps and doing all the organising or was that lots of trips over to the West Coast? Yeah, it was kind of... Maybe I went like four times over to the... It was It was. It's kind of something I'd always thought about doing, but generally I hadn't had didn't really don't really have time but then because of covid and not being able to leave scotland it seemed like a good opportunity to to spend the time and go to the west coast because i have to admit the west coast is probably one of my favorite places um that i've been in the world probably so why not why not spend a bit more time there and do some work over there and make some maps so it was it was a good excuse to go over there uh and then yeah i did uh I made, I think I did three of the maps. One of the maps was existing and then John Musgrave made a couple of the maps as well. So, uh, yeah, it kind of, it worked out well from that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I think, yeah, I think it was pretty good. People, I heard lots of great reports about it, so that's really great. Uh, I also want, of course, ask you about lockdown now, which um, took over a lot of our lives um, with all the fiendish puzzles and cursing about the maze or uh, the spot the difference things that um, that you were getting us all to do over lockdown. So take like take us back to the beginning. When did you first have the idea about that? Yeah, people got more obsessed with this than they did with actual orienteering. Yeah, they well. did. This is very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, and we even yeah, and the capturing features and oh my gosh, and I, I think it's still like still people playing a lot of it's still the capturing features league. Yeah, yeah, there's still a load of that. So when how, when did you have the idea, Chris? Uh it was a bit of a weird one. I was just out. I was out running in the hills, kind of next to my house, and I just as I was running, I thought, oh, why don't we just why don't we try some virtual orienteering competitions? As I was out running, so when I got back, I. Yeah, just like made a a website quickly and started advertising, and then uh, and then yeah, just I think made Thierry a and quickly and started advertising. Oh yeah, yeah, just yeah. like that, just like, easy for if me. I, if I don't do it today, I thought oh, I'm just not going to get like bother doing it because uh, I wanted to. Because uh, part of the reason was it was like ten days to the JK or what would have been the JK, so it's kind of to provide something else that because obviously everyone was, a lot of people were missing you know, doing the JK and wondering what else to do with their time. So uh, that's kind of, that's kind of why it was kind of maybe a need to get it, need to get it organized soon. Uh, and then, yeah, quite a few people entered and then Thierry entered and then it kind of went a bit crazy after that. And uh, yeah, that's when I had like 500 people entered the first one and I basically had no idea what I was doing. Like I hadn't even made all the games or anything. So I was a bit... I was like, this might not work. This might turn out really badly. <laughs> but it uh, it went all right. Yeah, with that first one, it went all right. And then and then after that, loads of people were, like volunteering to help make games or do various things. So it was like a yeah a big team effort really. And and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of fun to do it while it lasted. Um, but but I have to admit, I. Well. I, I yeah, it was a lot of work, but I don't, I don't really miss it now, to be honest with you. It's, uh, um, <laughs> I can imagine I much, it took over your life. I much prefer real orienteering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it just took over your life for a bit, you know, like, I mean, luckily there wasn't really probably very much else going on in your life because it was lockdown, but um, still, <laughs> like, very all-consuming. Did you have a favourite like, either event that you did or game that, that there was? I think my favourite is the Root Choice game. That's the only one I actually really play myself. So it's like, uh, uh, yeah, you just get... It's a uh, Finnish guy made made the game like a few years ago. And it's just like, you basically have to decide really quickly if it's quicker to go left or right. So it's uh, I think it's that's quite a good game. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I enjoyed that one. It's very, like, very fast and furious. And... I and mean, you got people from all over the world joining in. Like, where where do people join from? Where do people sign up from? So there was we did a World Orienteering Day one, which was like a free event, and I think we had like people from fifty different countries did that one. So I, that was that was quite yeah quite impressive, I guess. Um, yeah, there were some Japanese players doing quite well. Yeah, yeah, they were, it's a bit unfortunate because we had like uh, live, oh, it's like live master races like for the finals on some of them, 
And of course, when we we were doing it like eight p.m. UK time, it was like four a.m. in Japan, and they were like waking up to do them. <laughs> that really? <was> commitment. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and like, that's a lot of Swiss and a lot of Belgians and just all over the place. That's really cool. And then you, you did a couple of um, like post-lockdown unlocked ones. Um, are there are there, gonna, are there any more? Um, in the pipeline or have you put the whole project to bed at the moment yeah it's pretty much to bed because i got busy doing a lot of other things so <laughs> and like i said it was it was kind of fun to do it in lockdown but it's not i don't know maybe not so fun outside of lockdown <laughs> yeah i'm quite glad we've got actual orienteering we can do like it was a great event but it's difficult to be actual orienting <laughs> for sure <laughs> to be fair as well and you've also you've also bought a forest in uh, in lockdown not not content with crazy um lockdownos and coast and islands organizing and whatever else has been going on but you've also bought a forest well i bought some land to plant a forest yeah with some friends so that's uh yeah, that's that's quite a big project, shall we say. <laughs> How's it going so far? Yeah, it's uh, it's everything just takes it takes even longer. Every stage is taking longer than I anticipated. But I think the thing is that if you make a mistake in like the design and planting the trees, it's quite hard to change that ten years down the line. So it's better to plant the right trees in the right place and just design it properly at the start. So taking a bit more time to do all that. And what is the but plan? We've... What's the long-term goal of forestry? <laughs> so we want to, um, we're planting like a 50-50 a split between conifers and broadleaves and that most of the trees, it is supposed to be a productive forest. So you would use the timber in, in like construction or making furniture and that sort of thing in the future. But it's to use a, a, a forestry method called continuous cover forestry. So most productive forests in the UK are a clear fell and as most orienteers know you'll have a beautiful forest one day and then the next day they'll cut a massive block of it down and then you can't use it for another 30 years yeah so and that's not it's not that great for like landscape or for bio like biodiversity or like natural things so the continuous cover it, it creates a forest where all the trees are of different ages in the forest and then you just take out a small percentage every few years and it creates a more natural looking forest so that's what we're trying to do um, on very small scale, of course, in, in the overall scheme of things. But that's what we think more forests should be like. So that's kind of our inspiration. And the key question is, are we going to get to orienteer in this forest eventually? Well, I've act I have already made a map. So there are like there's probably 20 percent of it is already like mature woodland already. So and it's got a few a bit of rock detail and a little bit of contour detail so i have made a map i just haven't in the summer it's quite nettly shall we say so i'm waiting <laughs> for the winter to put on an event <laughs> yeah and we'll thank you for that as well um don't want to yeah. get caught in that so <laughs> that's really great um but if um but if people want to check out more we've got a youtube channel called diverse forests so you can check out some of the videos and have a tour of the land on there um and check out what we're going to be up to in the future yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, how did you how did you buy the forest? Auction? No, it was uh, it was just on the 
the open market, <laughs> shall we say? But was, we sale. were very, like, we'd, uh, as I say, I was very surprised that we got the piece of land we got. I thought a lot of other people would be bidding on it based on its location. Um, so when they said right. that we'd got it, I was like, like a bit in shock to start with. <laughs> <laughs> but it did take six months from having the offer accepted to actually getting it. So we did think that maybe it was going to collapse at any moment. So that was, uh, try not to get too excited until we actually had it. <laughs> Other than the couple of events coming up, what else is in the pipeline? Are there any more projects, any more races in the pipeline that you're organizing or things coming up? Yeah, so we're thinking of organizing some, a small multi-day event between Christmas and New Year in central Ooh. Scotland. So by the time this goes out, Hopefully there'll be something on our on the Master Plan Adventure website about it, so people can go and go and check it out on there. And then there will be ninety nine percent, ninety five percent sure to be a Coast and Islands next year. So if people are interested to find out more about that, if you go onto the Coast and Islands website, you can sign up to hear about when entries open for that. Very exciting! My gosh, all these things, all these projects juggling, and uh, they all sound really fantastic. So yeah, thanks very much, Chris. So thanks very much to Chris for chatting to us and sharing all his insight into all the different ways he is involved with orienteering. He, of course, will be back for a sprint episode in about a week's time. Uh, so that's pretty much it for the episode. But Will, you've got a few, apparently a few quirky words about uh, Envy and straight compasses today. Yes. So not the normal Envy plug this week. Everyone's come to expect them about running and um, how good the shoes are in terrain. And they are because I tested them this weekend in a cyclocross race. Um, so I was convinced last minute, and laugh you may, laugh you may, Catherine. Mm -hmm. I was convinced last minute to enter a cyclocross race by my housemates. Um, thank you, Duncan. And um, his mountain bike that I borrowed did not have um, clipless pedals. So I thought the best shoe for the job would be an MV Crazy Light Forest 2. So lightest shoe possible with the best grip possible in case it got stuck in any mud. And when I did, I didn't have to get off the bike very often, thankfully. I didn't, fall, I didn't crash either for those people joking right. around in, in the background. Um, uh, but when I did have to get off and um, jump over the barriers and all of that stuff like that, grip was perfect. No worries at all. Straight back on, straight past all the people taking it way too seriously in their skin suits. So <laughs> if, if you would like a pair of Envies for orienteering or for cyclocross, they're very versatile. Um, you can get your pair at nvstraight.uksales at gmail.com that is n-v-i-i-s-t-r and the number eight dot uk sales at gmail.com well yes that is um more more uh ways to use envy shoes than i thought was possible so yeah. um yeah thanks very much for that. we'll find Will. out we'll find out what i use them for next time hey <laughs> please surprise us uh, we'll be back as as we said in uh one week's time with uh the sprint episode from chris and in another couple of weeks time with another full length episode we'll be back then bye